Okay, sorry, I didn't know whether the scripture was going to be in front of us this morning for me to read. I should have had faith, because it always is. But I want to read this uh, passage from Luke 4 that uh, will be the passage that Colin is speaking from in just a minute, and then Colin will come. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here this Lord's Day. All right, got my clicker. We're ready to go. So, um, as you can see, we don't have, uh, or as you've seen, we don't have a very long passage to consider this morning, but uh, I think we will find plenty to consider in these four sentences before us, and that's how I want to uh, approach things this morning. So we're looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 42 uh, to 44. So we're first going to think about a solitary place. Do you have a solitary place? Let's read about Jesus. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The first thing we need to do here again is, as usual, put things into context. Jesus is in the town of Capernaum, in the region of Galilee, which is the northern part of the country. Capernaum was the hometown to five of his disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, two sets of brothers, and Matthew. And Capernaum was the home base for Jesus' ministry in the north. Luke is very specific in his writing here. He begins the sentence with the words, at daybreak. I think he must want to point out something to us here. If we look back at verse 40, we find out what happened the night before. At sunset, verse 40, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. At sunset, after the Sabbath was officially over, as Albert mentioned last week, the lineups began. Can you imagine that scene? Perhaps hundreds of people were brought to Jesus that evening. And even though he had been teaching in the synagogue, casting out demons, and even healing Peter's, uh, Simon, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, our Savior patiently, compassionately, and powerfully healed all who were brought before him well into the evening and probably most likely late into the night as well. Did you notice here that Luke writes, laying his hands on each one? You know, the Lord could have very easily just said one word to the massive lineup of people, and they all could have been healed instantly as a group. But no, 
the Lord Jesus dealt with each needy person individually. Now, maybe that's not a very important point, but again, as we saw last week, it speaks of that personal, individual love, care, and attention that God has for every person. Friend, you're not just like a social insurance number to your heavenly Father. He cares, he knows, he loves you personally and individually, just as you are. What an amazing God. What a wonderful Savior. And in spite of that busy day and a hectic evening, Luke points out that early at daybreak, the very next morning, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Quick scan of the gospel accounts shows that in the life of Jesus, this was not an unusual occurrence. Many times we read of Jesus going away to spend time alone. In Mark's account of this particular event, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read that he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He was there to pray. Now, he must have felt tired, yet he must have felt pretty energized and happy at the same time. Think of the accolades, the gratitude, and the celebrations of the night before. As all those sick and broken bodies and fractured lives had been instantly transformed. What a joyous occasion it must have been. What a thrill, even for the Lord, just to see those lives touched. And after that, surely he deserved to sleep in. Surely he deserved a little bit of extra rest, a little bit of pampering perhaps. But no, bright and early, sorry, I'm going the wrong direction here. Okay. There we are. Okay. Bright and early, he was up and out to spend time alone with his father. Now, why was this so important? Why did he want to do this? After all, he is co-equal with the Father, both in eternity and in power and also in glory. Why did he feel a need to do this? The short answer is because it's his nature. It's his nature to take on the role of God the Son and to find all his joy in doing his Father's will. Look at what he says in John 8, verses 28 and 29. I can do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. He is the beloved son who lived to please his loving father. He spoke only what the Father told him to speak. He thought and acted only and entirely as the Father directed him. He lived in divine love and devoted dependence on the Father. So this morning, this day, he naturally took that time. And nothing, not even the weariness and fatigue of the, earlier, uh, the night before could get in the way. I think Luke wants us to see that self-sacrifice and discipline were daily practices 
in the life of the Lord Jesus. And if he felt the need for time alone with the Father each day, how much more do we need the same? We too need to exercise self-discipline, uh, self-sacrifice and discipline to make time with our Heavenly Father a daily priority. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but it really seems to me like people these days do all they can to avoid solitude. Whether it's constantly looking at the phone, whether it's earbuds in and listening to a podcast or a playlist, it seems that from the moment people wake up, they want to be plugged into something. They want to be distracted. Are we afraid to be alone with our thoughts? Are we reluctant to just be quiet? I don't know, but there do seem to be so many distractions, so many voices constantly crowding our minds. Where is your solitary place? You know, in our busy lives, it could even be a place as simple as your car just before you go into your workplace. But let's have that solitary place and let's go there and be people who embrace solitude. Let's follow the Lord Jesus' example to make priority that moment to spend time alone in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father, praying, praising, thinking through his word and allowing him to reign in our lives all through the day. Next sentence. It's still in uh, verse 42, and I'm calling this part a self-righteous people. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. The sentence starts off wonderfully. The people were looking for Jesus. That's good. <laughs> it's good to want to find Jesus. Are you looking for Jesus this morning? I hope you find him. I pray you will find him. But why were they looking for him? It's good to be looking, but we must be looking for the right reasons. Sadly, the people of Capernaum were not looking for the right reasons. Now, knowing human nature, this is not in the least bit surprising. Surely the news had got out that Jesus was in town, and others heard about his amazing teaching and his incredible miracles. And as this happened, more and more people wanted to see him, to hear him, and to bring to him their sick loved ones to be healed. They wanted the show to continue. They wanted more miracles, more signs and wonders. They wanted to keep him for themselves. So when they found him, they tried to stop him from leaving them. It's kind of sad. They should have been wanting to worship him. They should have been wanting to join him, to follow him. They should have been bowing before him in submission, but no. They had the audacity to think that they knew better than he did. They tried to stop him. He should stay with them. How dare they? Wait a minute. Don't we sometimes do something like this? 
Don't we sometimes think and even pray like we know better than God? Lord, forgive us. Open our eyes to your glory. Make us eager to submit to your way and to your will and to follow your lead and not ever try to tell you what to do. When we start off our day grounded and centered in our loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, as Jesus set us an example here, all the calls, all the distractions, and the clamoring of the day will fall on deaf ears. The kingdom of God. Sentence 3, verse 43. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now we come to the mission of Jesus. Now we find out why he was sent. But first note the urgency of his mission. I must, I must, because that is why I was sent. Jesus had taken his orders from the Father. Nothing would dissuade him from pleasing his Father and doing his will. He was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. To fully understand this, we do actually need to go back and understand this term, kingdom of God. Now, there are probably very thick books written about this topic but I just want to give us a basic overview this morning. The kingdom of God means exactly what it sounds like. The kingdom of God is the establishment of God's rule. Universal and everlasting rule. It was the central hope of all the Old Testament prophets. Let's look at uh, some scriptures that illustrate this. So in Psalms 2, verses uh, 6 to 9, we read, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with pieces. We'll break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. <laughs> the prophet Isaiah wrote these wonderful words that we love to quote at Christmas time. Isaiah 6, verse 9, verses 6 to 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And look at these words from the prophet Daniel, chapter 2, verse 44. 
in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel also wrote of Messiah coming to exert universal and everlasting rule in Daniel 7. Let's look at those verses. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. As I said a moment ago, the coming and the establishment of this kingdom was the hope of all the Old Testament prophets. Then, with the birth of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, God's kingdom, broke into human history. The king had come. He was finally here. John came and he announced that the kingdom was near. And then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, verses 18 and 19, right at this chapter in Luke, we saw Jesus read the prophecy of Messiah from the book of Isaiah, and he said afterwards, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was saying in the clearest possible terms that he himself was the Messiah of Israel. He, the king, had come to deal with the massive problems that have stricken humankind throughout history. Problems like poverty, sorrow, bondage, suffering, and oppression. Jesus presented himself as the answer to all the problems that plague us. In talking about the term kingdom of God, I should add that we have two terms used interchangeably in the New Testament, kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And it's kind of interesting because Matthew is the only one who uses kingdom of heaven. All the other gospel writers write about the kingdom of God. And the reason Matthew chose to say kingdom of heaven is because he was writing to a Jewish audience and he followed the sensitivities that uh, Jewish audiences have to the, using the actual word God. So he replaced the word heaven. Uh, he put, used the word kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God in his writing. So yes, the king had finally come. But there was a kind of problem for the people in, of Jesus' day. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9, and 10, he told them they should pray, Our Father... In heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet the kingdom Jesus taught about was not exactly the kind of kingdom the people had expected. For example, in one of his parables, he compared the kingdom to a mustard seed, something that starts off tiny, but it grows and becomes a large plant. 
Later, he compared the kingdom to a field where good seeds of wheat were planted. But then an enemy sowed seeds of, uh, of, of weeds in the same field, and they grew up together. It was confusing for people. This was not the utopia they had expected. And furthermore, Jesus was not even acting like the warrior king who would come and smash their enemies to pieces. So what was the problem? Why was there a disconnect? Well, the answer lies in their misunderstanding of this fact. Messiah was coming in two phases. There were two comings of Messiah. He had to come first as the humble king of Zechariah 9.9. In, in that verse we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he had to come and become the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace, that brought us peace, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was sent first as the servant king. He was sent to inaugurate the year of the Lord's favor, the era, the age of grace, the period of God's great kindness to a rebellious, broken world. He was sent into this world to take the punishment our sins deserved and open the way for us to have peace with God. So God's kingdom had to first come in the hearts of the people before it could ever come in a universal sense. So that's why his teaching focused mainly on the reign of God in human hearts a reign that will control and transform individual lives one by one from the inside out. The fact that God's kingdom would come first not as a kingdom of this world, but as a spiritual kingdom had also been prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 33, we read, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Sadly, the Jewish leaders had overlooked all this. Hence, the disconnect between what Jesus came to teach at first and what the people had been expecting. Later, he will come as the warrior king the prophecy of Daniel spoke about. Our last sentence is verse 44. Good news, good news. And he kept on preaching the good news in the synagogues of Judea. So the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus kept on preaching was 
the servant king had come, the era of the Lord's favor had begun, and that by repenting of sins and believing in him, accepting him as king, we might say, the reign of God in a human heart and life was now available to all. The kingdom had to first come as a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of the people. Nowhere is this teaching more clear than in John chapter 3, when Jesus privately talks to a Jewish leader named Nicodemus about entering the kingdom of God. So let's have a quick look at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Rabbi, he, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus was undoubtedly one of the people confused about the meaning of the kingdom of God. He knew all the favorite prophecies of Messiah, the everlasting kingdom. He knew them all. He had probably even heard some of Jesus' teachings and seen some of his miracles. But nothing else about Jesus seemed to match his idea of Messiah. Now, I really like how Jesus wastes no time with informalities. He got right to the very heart of the matter and told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again if he wanted to see or experience the kingdom of God. A couple of verses later in verse 6 of John 3, Jesus explains. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. He's making it unmistakably clear that he is referring to a spiritual birth in the hearts of people. Note that spirit with a capital S refers to God's spirit and spirit with a small s to the human spirit. The kingdom of God had to come first in the hearts of people. And that meant a new life in the form of God's spirit indwelling hearts and transforming them. After gently scolding Nicodemus for his lack of insight into scripture, Jesus then uses a story from the book of Numbers to illustrate God's plan of salvation for all peoples. Same chapter, verses 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Note he uses the term Son of Man, the exact word used in the prophecy of Daniel for Messiah. He is basically saying that Messiah had to die. But through Messiah's death, eternal life would be available to all. So to briefly summarize that story from uh, Numbers that Jesus is referring to, uh, the children of Israel had been wandering for many years in the wilderness. 
And at one particular moment, their rebellion against God and their dissatisfaction with Moses kind of reached a peak. It says they spoke against God and against Moses. God then sent punishment into the camp in the form of poisonous snakes, and many people were bitten and died. The people realized they had sinned, and they pleaded with Moses to pray for them. And Moses did that. And then the Lord told Moses to do this. Numbers 21. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. How is this a picture of Jesus' death on the cross? First, that bronze snake held up was a declaration to all that what was held up on that pole had been killed. The snake was dead. That's what it typified. That's what it showed. The very source of the poison that was killing those helpless people had been destroyed. Friends, we're just like those dying people. We have all been infected by the sin of rebellion against God. We refuse to honor and love him as we should. We live selfish lives and we're helpless to overcome it. But the good news is that God loves us. And the death of Jesus on the cross is a picture of the end of that poisonous power and punishment that sin holds over us. Jesus paid the price for all our sins. We read in Romans 8, chapter, Romans 8 verse 3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Truly, as we read earlier, all our iniquities, our sins, were laid on him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The bronze snake on the pole was also a picture of the gift of forgiveness and new life. All those dying people had to do was to look at the bronze snake, and they lived. Of course, they had to be told the good news that if they looked, they would be healed. They had to hear that. They had to understand that, and they had to do it. They had to look. I wonder if any refused. I wonder if thought, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing that. I don't know. It was as though that bronze snake on the pole, a symbol of death to the power and punishment of sin, became a substitute for their punishment. And when they looked at it, they lived. Similarly, Jesus' death on the cross was life-giving for us. All we who have been bitten by sin are doomed to physical and spiritual death, but with one look of faith and an acknowledgement that his death on the cross was in our place and for our healing, 
we are freed and will live forever. Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Note that nobody else could look for those who had been bitten by the snake. They had to look for themselves. Once the good news of the antidote to the poison was announced, people had to personally respond based on the message from Moses, through Moses. And when they acted with faith and looked, they lived. It was a look of faith. Finally, this gift of healing and forgiveness for those people, it was free for all who had been bitten. It was 100% effective. In the same way, the remedy for the sin in our lives is powerful and completely foolproof because Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves it, guarantees it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. John then summarizes this fantastic little sermon from Jesus with the most famous Bible verse of all, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he continues in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why was Jesus sent? Because God the Father, the one who started it all, loves sinful people. And he loves because it's his nature to love. He's a loving God. His love depends not on what we are, but on who he is, on what he is, a loving God. Now, this truth that God loves all the people of the world was hinted at before, but it almost comes like a new teaching here. Earlier writings described God's love for his own people, but here the truth is that God loves all of us. His love is so great that he gave all he had to give so that we would be saved from the condemnation we're under because of sin. Now, I see this chapter in John as kind of a pivotal chapter, especially when it comes to the terminology. The only time in, God, in John's gospel the term kingdom of God is used is right here with Nicodemus. And this is the point where a kind of switch takes place. A relatively new term is going to take over. A truly New Testament term. The term eternal life. The Greek adjective John uses here, it's translated eternal in English, but the Greek adjective he uses has an actual meaning of life appropriate to the age to come. Eternal really means life appropriate to the age to come. Now, the English word eternal 
only captures the timelessness of this, uh, of this idea. It doesn't capture the quality that was included in the original Greek word. Eternal life is a life whose quality nothing earthly can produce or match. Nothing earthly can produce or match. And we can have it now. We can enter into eternal life even while we're living in space and time on planet Earth. How can we do that? The requirement is belief in the Son, belief in the Lord Jesus. Now, when we think about it, the concepts of eternal life and the kingdom of God are really not that far apart. Because having eternal life means we're born from above. It means having the reign of God in our heart by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. This is living under the rule of God. We are a child of God. And as we look into the book of Acts and as we read the epistles throughout the New Testament, the good news proclaimed is that through faith in Jesus, there is eternal life, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide, help, and transform us. Why was Jesus sent? To set into motion the era of grace, where through his death and resurrection, all people can enter into eternal life through faith in him. How about you this morning? Have you looked? Have you seen Jesus' death on that cross? Have you seen his resurrection from death as the source of your forgiveness, as the way for you to find peace with God? Have you entered into eternal life? You can have it today but I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Just coming to church won't do it for you. You must do it yourself. Admit your selfish pride has kept you far from God. Thank God for sending Jesus. Look at the cross and see the punishment your sins deserve being laid on Jesus and thank him. Open your life to him. Ask him to give you that new life and fill you with his spirit so he can guide, help, and transform you from the inside out. You can have it today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful Savior. Thank you for your word that reveals to us this incredibly good news that eternal life begins now in this life. And we can have it because of our Savior, because of his sacrifice, because of your love. Lord, open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.